When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, Mike Hussey here, but you can call me Mr. Supercoach. KFC Supercoach BBL is back and there's 25 grand up for grabs. So what are you waiting for? Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Hello and welcome to Aussies Only. It's your host, Jed Zetzer, and today I'm joined by award-winning journalist Courtney Walsh. Courtney talks about his life and journey in tennis from playing to coaching to entering the world of journalism. I hope you all enjoy the show. Here's Courtney. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me on Aussies Only. Really appreciate you taking the time out of what is a crazy 24 hours for you getting over to the All England Club. Um, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Jed. Uh, speaking to you from the airport in Delhi en route. Um, the freelancers lot, I'm taking the cheaper option this time, but I will recommend the, the terminal here. It's not too bad. And if anyone wants a cheaper flight to Europe, say this is not a bad option at this stage. We'll see how the second league goes, though. Courtney, tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. There's so much to talk about, your tennis journey with your journalism journey, but tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. So, look, I grew up in uh, Ballarat, about an hour and a half, I suppose, from uh, Melbourne. Or Gold Rush Town, Eureka Stockade uh, is what it's famous for. Plenty of good footballers, Tony Lockett, for example, uh, the great marathoner, uh, Steve Monaghetti. But I suppose, look, I, I was introduced to tennis by my dad. He played at the Ballarat Lawn Tennis Club. Uh, he grew up in the country, and so I was on the courts with him from a young age. I was having my first lessons in tennis at the Ballarat Indoor Tennis Centre, which no longer exists, sadly, but uh, Bobby Benoit, Rob Benoit, uh, who's still coaching in Ballarat and, and a ripping fella, he was my uh, my childhood coach. I sort of spent, uh, you know, came through, I think I played my first tournament at six and embarrassed myself. I was told to move my feet when returning and uh, would dance to one side of the court and back to the other. And fair to say the local number one was able to handle me pretty easily at that age. But I guess from there, look, I, I, I absolutely fell in love with tennis. I played a bit of footy as well, but, uh, you know, played a lot of tennis all the way through. So I suppose from, you know, a 10 or so I was coming to Melbourne to play uh, sort of tournaments on a, on a pretty regular basis. Started playing Melbourne pennant. We were coming from Ballarat sort of at the age of 13 for Liston, which was a club out in Williamstown and had uh, Mark Philippoussis sort of was lived around the corner and Joan Kerner with the former Victorian Premier was a member there. About 17 or so, I was uh, I moved to MCC and sort of started playing pennant with MCC. There was a good Ballarat connection there with Peter Keller, who was a top line sort of player all the way through, still an outstanding senior in his sort of late 60s. And then... F- sort of played some pennant with uh, West Melton, Bacchus Marsh and blokes that I'd grown up playing against, the Kelly gang. And uh, so we sort of, you know, we played a lot of, uh, I suppose we played a lot of grade one. Like I sort of played a little bit of state grade um, with MCC here and there and uh, some, then moved to Perth and played state grade over there. And, and I suppose uh, came back and, and I'm still playing, I uh, still go away and play country every year 
with uh, some of the guys that I grew up playing against, um, which is just uh, one of the great events in the calendar. I suppose in my age group, when I was growing up, we had an outstanding prop. So Mark Philippoussis was, uh, you know, clearly uh, clearly outstanding. I, I didn't play Mark. I, I got to the semifinals of the Vic Schoolboys twice, and the guy that crunched me was then crunched by Philippoussis. I remember Andrew Ellie played him in a doubles, I think in a, like a national points final in the 18s somewhere and he uh i was wearing glasses at that stage and he clubbed a forehand so hard straight at me knocked the glasses off my head um those two were getting beaten by a guy for a little while called jung ming lee who is uh from korea and based out of geelong and he was outstanding i think he went back to national service and ended up at ucla later on but uh jung handled me my first ever double bagel which uh i think in a final of the geelong national points and be fair to say, I haven't forgotten being beaten love and love by uh, someone, but he was so good. But look, I loved it. It was it was a really good sort of uh, sport to pursue as a kid. It fostered a love for me. I, uh, I spent some time coaching uh, while I was at university. I was at university in Melbourne, but sort of was still coaching in Ballarat um, and spent a couple of years coaching full-time after that before moving into journalism. And look, the, the beauty of it is I'm still meeting friends around the world uh, who I've played against um, you make lifelong connections and, and I think that's a great thing about tennis. Do you think the fact that you were playing at such a high level, because grade one pennant especially is, is you know, a really high level of tennis um, just in Melbourne. But I mean, do you find the fact that you played at such a high level and made these connections, has that made your job in journalism a little bit easier? The fact that you've got connections, you know some of the people that you're working with, um, has, that, has that helped you at all? Look, I think it has, and look, obviously, uh, you know, uh, I suppose grade one is a is a really good level. Is obviously you know a bit higher, and did play a few uh, a few you know quite a lot of money tournaments, etc. But didn't quite push, didn't have enough talent to push any further than that. But what you did do is play against people or grow up with people who were who were similarly invested, and so you know, just even in Paris a couple of weeks ago uh, at uh, Roland Garros during the French Open, those connections were my best mate. Uh, who's now coaching for Tennis Scotland, but he was uh, helping out a kid from Australia who was trying to play qualies, uh, who, you know, just beaten in a super tiebreaker, Edward Winter from uh, from Adelaide, another really, really close mate, a, a guy who, who uh, I suppose, spoke at my 21st. Um, Rowan Fisher is still at Tennis Australia, and he, you know, I didn't actually catch him because he was so busy, but he's done such great things in, in tennis as well. And, you know, he was, he was too, I've been off, heading off to Netherlands with... Uh, with Taylor Preston and, and uh, you know, done some really good things. So, though, you know, knowing those people has helped. You've had, I suppose, access to to people you've played against. Like, uh, you know, another great mate, Brady Hunter, was sort of coaching a lot of the young women. Um, you know, you meet people in, in bars here and there that you've had connections with. It, it really does help you, I think, have an, have an understanding of, of or, or a better understanding of what goes on in the game. I'm certainly not um, going to profess to know, you know, even – a quarter of what goes on everywhere, but you, you have an idea of what goes on and it, and it helps you to sort of, I think, generate further interest and love for the sport yourself. And, and I think at least being able to understand, not, as I said, never played professionally, but certainly played, you know, played a few, I suppose, uh, attempted to play sats, satellites and that and played against guys who played a lot of them and played against a lot of guys who played college, etc. So you have an understanding of, of that level of tennis and what it gets to. And I think that can only help. The connections you make are invaluable. Courtney, when did you fall in love with the sport? Because you mentioned that you've been playing from a young age, that your father introduced you to the sport. But when you feel like you actually fell in love with it and you thought, yeah, this is awesome? No, look, I, I do think pretty much from the first uh 
from the first time I was you know, having a coaching lesson. And there's a, I remember there's a photo that uh, that was taken, which um, which we still got it. And I had a hell of a lot of hair, like a long blonde, uh, basically mullet, uh, not quite mullet, but more a bowl when I was uh, about four. And, and I, you know, eyes almost shut, poking my tongue out as I hit a forehand. But I just remember loving that environment at the Ballarat Indoor Tennis. And, you know, every moment that I had spare, I, I'd be up there, sort of we'd play, Tuesday night A-grade men's from sort of 9 or 10 or maybe, you know, 10 or 11. No, probably 10 at 10 years old. You'd play the Wednesday night, the A-grade mixed doubles. We'd have Macca's squad coaching on the Thursday night. Friday night, I'd have some mates playing in the B men's and I was up there every night. Probably play footy on the Saturday. You'd play Melbourne pennant on the Sunday. So I just spent so much of my life sort of around that environment up there. And it was, you know, and that I think, you know, really did generate a whole community of people who I love and enjoy and still catch up with. And, and, and they're people who, you know, in London over the next couple of weeks, I'll be staying with a mate uh, for a few days who from back of Smash, I'm going to go to the US Open later in the year and stay with, uh, you know, my childhood doubles partner who we, you know, I think we made a, we won an Essendon doubles title at sort of 16s or 18s and, and another, and my other best mate who, um, who played a lot of Melbourne pennant with me. And yeah, he was, he was sort of, very, very good junior, a few years younger than me. They're both in New York, go to the British Open after Wimbledon and same with, as I said, my mate from Tennis Scotland who we played so many, so much tennis together. I remember when he was really trying to make it and I was basically the hitting partner with him. And so you had to fall in love because you were doing it every day, basically, or, or five times a week. And so from a very young age, all the way through, I think that love's been pretty strong. For sure. And it's amazing, the yeah, the connections that you make, really invaluable so Courtney, when did you decide that you wanted to become a journalist? Because I guess a lot of aspiring tennis players go down the coaching route or some decide, you know, that they completely want to sort of detach themselves from tennis. When did you decide that journalism was for you? I, I guess it was, uh, look, I always, always had an interest in reading the paper. So my dad would bring home the Herald in the afternoon and I'd go through the sport results. So, and I'd read probably both ends of the paper. Um, I stuffed up an honours year at Melbourne Uni, so I was I was uh, I was doing a study into the economic rationalisation of country racing tracks in Victoria and the impact that had on towns. Missed a deadline, which you should never do as a journalist, clearly, but I uh, just got a date wrong, and uh, that stuffed up the whole year. So as a result, I actually tennis coached full time for two years back in Ballarat, um, and really enjoyed it. We had, as I said, the crew of coaches. Well, you know, one's gone to just about the top at Tennis Australia in terms of his involvement. The other one worked for Tennis Australia now is at Tennis Scotland. Another one ended up as you know, chief executive of Tennis Queensland for some time uh, and, and a couple of just outstanding coaches you know, in, uh, locally who, were, who did great things. So we had a great group of coaches, but it wasn't for me. Like I, I, I enjoyed it, but I just, I think I wanted to write. And so I, I basically decided I'd do journalism and uh, did a postgrad in journalism uh, sort of in my second year while still coaching and was able, lucky enough to get into the Herald Sun. I got a cadetship there. Worked as a news journalist for, for four years, but always clearly had an interest in sport. And when a job popped up in WA with the Australian newspaper, I was able to, to get across there. And I'd worked a little bit for a, a community newspaper called MX Writing Sport. And, and basically from there, I was able to sort of move into sport journalism and, and clearly given my sort of passion for tennis um, and for footy, but for tennis, um, it, it was not a bad uh, fit for me and it sort of enabled me to start writing at length about tennis. Fast forward a couple of years, 2019, your incredible work was recognised 
when you were awarded the Ron Bookman Award, which is the ATP's recognition for the best tennis journalist in the world for that given year. Can you just tell us about that experience? Because what an incredible, incredible award to receive. How proud were you of yourself in that moment in time? Look, I was really, I've got to say, I was surprised. I wasn't necessarily expecting it. Um, and it was a really, uh, a real honour when I sort of was alerted. Uh, you know, I guess you wake up overnight from the news from Europe and I'd received an email from Nicola Rosani, the ATP sort of head of comms, who's a, a very decent man and, and very helpful. You look through the honour list and you see, just from the Australian sort of perspective, you see, uh, you know, Alan Atwood, I think, is on there, and, and Linda Pierce, who was a top-line journalist, uh, still a top-line journalist for Code Sports, but for The Age. Uh, and then you look at some of the other other writers who have won it, Christopher Clary, who is a, you know, a wonderful writer for The New York Times, and I think he's won it a couple of times, Bud Collins, who's sort of iconic in, in tennis journalism, um, and... and you know, Kevin Mitchell, for example, uh, I think won the year after me. Uh, Praj from India won this year. It's sort of it, it's it really does have an accomplished list of journalists. So to to think that I would even be considered in that was was incredible. And, and I'm still not certain I uh, deserve to be there. But it was it was a, it was a good year in terms of just from a you know I, I wrote a, a really sort of decent detailed feature on. Alex Stimanoff, for example, which ran it as a cover story for the Weekend Australian magazine. And, and to get a Weekend Australian magazine sort of cover as a journalist was a was a big thrill. I've sort of had a couple with Ash Barty, but Stimanoff was Enter the Demon and, and sort of wondering where he would get to and, you know, had photos sort of teed up in Portugal where he was playing and talking to his mum in Spain. And, and Alex sort of around the world at different stages was is a thrill, but also it was a lot about the ATP Cup and where we were going, what was happening with Tennis Australia at the time, where the ATP were going. I was able to get, a, I suppose, a lead on a couple of those things. So that that helped me. Um, but it was it was a real thrill, and it's something that I'll really treasure. And, uh, you know, I think I was presented um, the award on court by uh, at Pat Rafter Arena during the ATP Cup by Jerry Armstrong, the umpire who you know, has done, who was famously involved in a, in a McEnroe stash many years earlier, but has done great things with the ATP since. And and a good friend of mine, Nerily Meadows, who you know she's a star in sort of uh, sports broadcasting. She was uh, the on-court announcer, so it, it was really a really nice moment. And to to be presented on Pat Rafter Arena, well, Pat was such an icon when you're growing up, and I've always found him so brilliant to deal with. Uh, you know, in the years in my time in journalism. So I, I sort of, uh, I really liked that. It was, a, it was a real thrill. I guess just recognition that you deserve firstly, but also just a whirlwind moment would have been incredible. You well, mentioned- I wasn't booed, so that was a good thing. <laughs> Courtney, you mentioned obviously working with Alex Demon after that piece. Can you tell us about some of the athletes and also just some of the people in general that you've, um, I guess, written about and some of the maybe crazy experiences that you may have had over your time? Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess in journalism, uh, in, in tennis journalism, the 15 years or so I've been, or 16 years I've been properly involved has been, you've seen the legends. So that's been a, a wonderful thing in itself from uh, from Federer and Nadal and, and uh, Djokovic and Serena Williams through to, I've got to say, you know, Ash Barty has been outstanding to cover for, for quite a few years. And Sam Stozer as well has always been wonderful to cover. Uh, so, you know, I've been very lucky in that perspective. Look, even before, probably the, the one story I loved the most actually happened while I was still a news journalist and we didn't write about it, but uh, it was an amazing experience. I was 
uh, Davis Cup semi-final, Australia versus Switzerland at Melbourne Park. Just went with a couple of friends. So was, as I said, a news journal. Oh, sorry, went with a then girlfriend and and another really close mate. And uh, see Hewitt get over the line against Federer was incredible from two sets and five three down and, and to, to clinch that tie. He clearly had a few beers and must have had quite a lot because we ended up at a casino nightclub, which is not something I would ever normally do. And we walked in and and the first thing we saw was Mark Rosset, the, the Swiss player, you know, walking around with a couple of darts in his hand and we've gone, wow, that's incredible on a Sunday night late in, uh, in, you know, in September. And then we walk in and it was not that busy. And we see the Swiss guys, Federer, George Bastel, uh, Rosset, et cetera, in this nightclub. No one really recognised them. And if you think about the timing, it was 2003. So before Facebook, uh, before Twitter, et cetera, Federer had won Wimbledon a couple of months earlier, but realistically in Melbourne on a Sunday night, not many people at a nightclub are going to necessarily recognise him at that stage because he hadn't, you know, we, tennis players knew who he was. And so we sort of we looked at them and my mate was wearing a, a Wimbledon T-shirt from that year underneath his shirt, another friend had said it across. So, and I don't hate hassling athletes, but, you know, clearly it had enough and went over and said, Roger, you won this. You know, do you mind signing it? He said, no, no, no. He said, oh, yeah, okay. So I raced downstairs, was able to grab a pen, ran back upstairs and Roger signed my mate's shirt, sort of, uh, you know, Roger Federer 2003. And they, look, we, we steered clear from them. George Bastel did try and hit on my girlfriend uh, while we were standing there. So I thought that wasn't uh, tremendous, but nonetheless, uh, he's, doing, he's still doing well. He played a mate of mine a few weeks ago in Switzerland and uh, knocked him off two and two. And Federer was dancing up and down against the wall, having a great time. So you sort of saw Federer in a different light to what, you know, I guess you would normally see. It was it was an amazing experience. So that was sort of, that wasn't quite in the journalism side. I, I guess from from writing about them, uh, Nadal once in Shanghai a few years ago to see the way he handled the adulation was unbelievable. Myself and another journalist just got back from the site. We were staying in the same hotel. The the foyer was crammed with people. Nadal arrives. We, we got off the shuttle. Nadal arrived in his car and he was mobbed. We're talking, there had to have been at least 200 people in the in the foyer as he's making his way through. So we sort of, we got through and we just sort of we thought, see what, how this goes. And he signed everything. He posed for photos. He did, you know, as much as you could possibly imagine from a guy who finished late at night. He's so generous. And then he, he gets to the, the lift well and they hold the lift. And he gets in and then we hear him yell, hear him say, hey, 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 those guys pointed to me and, and my colleague, they were here first, let them in. So, you, so he stops the list, you get in and say, hey, how are you going, guys? And we share the lift up with him to watch the way he handled everything. He was with Mark Lopez and a couple of others. Uh, it was astonishing to see just his general demeanour, given, as I said, he was properly mobbed by people when he signed and did everything. Ash has been a wonderful to cover you know, sort of through her career. I remember when she walked away from the sport, I, I sort of spoke to her in a tiny little hotel room in New York about three weeks earlier with another Aussie journo. And, you know, she was clearly really struggling at that time. And, yeah, you, you, you sort of hoped you hadn't looked, the sport hadn't lost her. Big. And to see her come back and and do what she's done uh, has been immense. I've had, a, had the good, good fortune of sort of travelling with her to a couple of different experiences, which have been mind-blowing up to Cairns about two or three years ago with her and Yvonne sort of spent the day covering as she did a clinic, you know, jump, she gave me a ride back into town. You sort of, you know, talking about golf, this and that. She was fantastic. Went to Uluru with her in February and to see her sort of coaching kids on the red dust uh, in the shadows of Uluru was, was awesome. And, you know, her dad's a wonderful guy. In fact, I'm sure the whole family I haven't had much to do with, with her mum, but the, the whole family, but her dad's a ripper and she's just someone who's very, I think, 
so good for the game. So that's been great. Look, Nick, uh, I, I found him hot and cold, but I, I, I look, I, I appreciate his talent and at different times he's been absolutely fantastic to me. I, I do find with Nick, you know, ask him a question that he can respond in terms of talking about other players or other, you know, certain topics, and he will give really insightful answers. The ATP, at the time we were really struggling, I was flying over to, to Tokyo a couple of times to, to cover the Japan Open and with the, with the basis around sitting down with Nick for a proper detailed interview. He won the Japan Open in 10 and said, nah, sorry, mate, I can't be stuffed one year. And then the next year he went to Japan, went to China afterwards and, you know, had a, had a meltdown on court against Steve Johnson. I reported it and, you know, that which you have to do on another occasion where he's walked up middle of the night about two o'clock in New York. He's just had a good win. It's been a long day for, for everyone because you're out in New York at about 11 a.m. and he's still sitting there about 2 a.m. filing. And it was a couple of Dorothy Dixon questions, you know, straightforward questions. Hey, how you going? Uh, well done. And he dropped the ATP's corrupt line. It's like, oh, no one wanted it. His agent's going, oh, God, pull him away. So, but I look, you know, look, I, I, I can't call, I suppose, some of the antics was the umpires, but everything else, I, I don't mind as much. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, still, you know, I, I think, as I said, yeah, I got two trips to Japan for no interviews, which wasn't ideal, but I had a great time. So I've always found him sort of very interesting to cover. Bernie, I've never found to be, I mean, for all, you know, the stuff that he's done wrong, I know he's polarised, you figure. He at least will always ask when you walk into a press conference, how are you going? Or, you know, he, he, I find him actually okay in those sort of situations. I remember once going down to covering him when he was 14, he just had another really good junior result. In sale, he played Nick Lindahl uh, in the first round of a of the Challenger tournament. Nick's, you know, sub- subsequently done for match fixing, but Nick was, you know, really talented player. Beat him in three sets and sat down and Bernie and had a chat. And he was fine, and then his old man basically shouldered me as I was walking through the door, which was a an interesting experience. So, you know, John, a couple of different stages, you could see uh, there was some volatility there. So I suppose it's been it's been interesting to cover different individuals and yeah it's been some some sort of really good insights but also some pretty weird and wild moments. Incredible! I still can't get over seeing Roger Federer in the casino nightclub on a Sunday night. That is just unbelievable. One of the great stories that I've heard. Like I don't think anyone else would have recognised him. We and we aside from grabbing you know saying did mine sign my my mate's shirt. We didn't we didn't hassle them at all. But it was just. You know, fascinating to sort of dance near them and see what they were, see how they were going about it. And they were, yeah, you know, no one really recognised them. And they were just having a great time among themselves. And you know, clearly it was a it was a really difficult defeat for them because they wanted to win a Davis Cup so much. And you know, they managed to do that many years later with Warinka. Oh, the other one was Warinka. This is I still can't believe this happened. The day you know he wins the Australian Open final. 2014, I think it was. Just thinking back, 2014, 2015. I can't. 2014, I think it was. Yeah. End of a long, long, uh, long, long fortnight. We head up into town afterwards. As with every Australian Open, you sort of you don't get out of there till well after midnight, one o'clock. Went to the supper club, which we knew would be open for a late night drink, and I was with a couple of colleagues, um, Courtney Newen from the WTA, and Nerelli, I think, was there as well. She was at a different she was at a different part, and I was with uh, I mean, Alex Willis or uh, or uh, Lee Walsh or someone like that, and we we're sitting having a having a quiet drink when from Siglo upstairs, Stan Warinka and his and and the whole party walk downstairs and the Siglo's closed upstairs. They've walked downstairs. They come go to come into the, the supper club and because they had about eight people or ten people in the group, they wouldn't let them in. There was plenty of space, but they were saying we're only sitting groups of six. Stan had a glass of champagne. He's dropped it on the couch. Couldn't believe it. I think Nerelis rushed over and said, what are you doing? This guy's just won 2.5 million the Australian Open. And they said, no, 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 we don't care. We turned back rock stars here. So Stan and his crew headed off 
wouldn't couldn't get into the supper club. He couldn't believe it. It was, uh, it was, and this is his parents. Like it was barely a rowdy lot. It was. Uh, I reckon he would have bought the most expensive bottle of wine on the uh, on the list that night. So I think they headed off to Commercial Road and had a. They, I think they turned up at the Tennis Australia party and he was putting away beers and shots at the bar at six a.m. Is my understanding. So always, uh, always a good. He, he, apparently he's got some uh, some going in stand. I mean, that's just literally time and place, just being in the right place at the right time, be able to witness those types of things. Pure fluke in a regard, or you know, clearly pure desperation for a beer to end, uh, end the fortnight, but uh, he well, clearly he had the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney, I want to speak about a sport which is growing rapidly around the world and has recently <laughs> hit the shores of Australia, paddle. I've played it three times this week. I've, I'm absolutely addicted since you introduced me to it a couple or going back a month or two now. I just want to speak about paddle and you've been to Las Vegas earlier this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that sport, how you got into it? And just for those who might not have ever heard of it, um, I guess what paddle is? Yeah, the uh, the good people then at One Paddle are looking after you. I'm, I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Um, it's one of the random things. Look, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough while uh, covering the AFL to head up to the Gold Coast. Uh, I got out of the lockdown and, and covered the last two months of the season up there. You know, I did quarantine, etc. And a great mate of mine, Brad Sewell, the, the former Hawthorne Best and Ferris Premiership player, he grew up uh, not far from Ballarat and he was an outstanding, he was a really, really talented tennis player, still loves it. Had the good fortune of hitting on, uh, good fortune of Pat Cash has got him onto Wimbledon and onto Roland Garros. He's a Hawthorne man. So Sully hits a really nice ball and we hit whenever we can. Living in Byron Bay at the moment, at the, at the time, he loved paddle and he would go out to the KDB Centre with Ross Taylor, who uh, is an outstanding player in paddle, a really good coach up there. And so he invited me out to play. Another great mate, Brett Hunter, who, you know, Ballarat boy, who, you know, outstanding coach as well. So so played that day, I was a bit hungover. <laughs> Not a theme here, but, you know, you journal, sometimes you go out for a beer. And it was just loved it. The, the reflexes, the, the back and forward, the uh, the touch needed, the, I suppose, the strategy that it was chess-like. So I found that fascinating. When they opened up in the Docklands, I had a, a really good mate of mine, Rob, Rob Daly, who was a, a long-time state grade number one and, uh, you know, beat beat some really, really good players, played sort of through France and Germany. And so we went down and, and sort of played a little bit. Clearly, the, the World Senior Championships came up. They must have been desperate for a player because uh, I got the call up to, to go across and uh, and play in the 45s. Gives away my age, but the 45s for Australia in the World Championships, uh, in the World Senior Championships in Las Vegas uh, in March. And it was fantastic. We uh, Look, we, we were beaten largely on the court. It certainly was an introduction uh, for the group of death. Uh, Brazil knocked us off early into Argentina, who have been dominant in the sport for forever. They knocked us off uh, very handily, but we improved a lot and the, and the trajectory improved. It was, was great uh, by the end. And the team had a win over Denmark, so we uh, that was good. Australia, I think in the men's, we finished 14th. It was the first ever time Australia's won a match on the world, you know, in, in the World Championships. So tremendous group of guys and girls. I love the fact that it's men and women similar to tennis, and it's a sport, I think, which is an equaliser. I mean, look, clearly at the top level. And there were Spaniards just off the professional tour who were unbelievable. And the Argentinians were incredible. So to, 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 I suppose to put it in perspective, it's been really big sort of in Spain and sort of through South American countries for a long, long time. But growing at a, at a rapid, rapid rate, you've got, I think, a, a mate from Head told me that they sold twice as many pedals in Spain last year as they did tennis rackets, given Rafael Nadal has been such a dominant player in tennis and have got some top liners, Bedosa, for example, uh, and so many good men over the years, Sanchez Vicario. Through Scandinavia, you know, in Sweden, I think there's five times as many 
Padel courts now is what there is tennis courts, which again went from a country that had Volander, Borg, Edberg, you know, some of the greats in terms of men's tennis. When we played in, in Vegas, there's some of the some old tennis players. So Elke Klister's sister of Kim was playing for Belgium. We played Marcos Daniel, a Brazilian. He got to about 50 in the world. Jen Snipshield, who, who was a top 100 player from Germany, who played Worcester in the third round. We played against those two guys. Jared Palmer, an Aussie open doubles winner in 95, a former world number one. He was playing for the States. And there was a couple of others that have been touring tennis players. It's basically, it's a, it's a hybrid of tennis and squash. I think. Look, defence is really important. It's, it's a really strategic game. Power is not always your friend. Um, you've played it, Jed, so you'd understand that. Where it goes in Australia, I'll be fascinated. Clearly, there's some good investment sort of in, in the Gold Coast. Now in Melbourne, Perth's got a great sort of setup. I understand Sydney's got a great setup. There was a world champs, oh, sorry, Australian sort of trials last weekend there. You know, I received notice this week from the French Tennis Federation accreditation for for Roland Garros. There's a tournament the week after Wimbledon, which will be held at Roland Garros. Another notification popped up for a tournament in London the weekend after that. So it's growing. Guitar's throwing a lot of money at it, similar. So there's a bit of a breakaway like golf. So it'd be fascinating to see where it goes. But it's really a great sport. It's a, it's a lot of fun and, uh, and I'd encourage anyone to have a crack at it. Just simply having fun out on the court. I also find that it's quite an easy sport to play for those who aren't amazing at sports so anyone can play it anyone can pick up a paddle racket and yeah and and actually have a good time and be competitive so Courtney you've had an incredible career in journalism and I mean you've already achieved basically the Hail Mary in tennis winning the Ron Bookman award but do you have any (laughs) do you have any goals for the future that you've really got your heart set on achieving? Like, what's what's next for you? That's a really good question. The Holy Grail might have been winning the slam or uh, something like that. I would have given anything to be good enough to even play a, a match on the professional tour. I'll take the uh, I'll take the Bookman Award. Look, it's a good question. I just think, I still think your, your, your duty is to try and do every story as, as, as good as possible. So I know that sounds strange, but I think the next... Your next story should always be the one you're trying to focus on and do as well as as well as you can. Recently, been ghosting a couple of athletes in terms of footy players and also a tennis player in terms of writing, helping them write their columns or write their books. And and I think it'd be interesting. At some stage, I wouldn't mind actually turning my head to trying to do a proper book on the tour. I have a colleague, Will Swanton, who who wrote a great book a few years back called The Slams. Had a good fortune of sort of, you know, sitting with Chris Clary for, for lunch and for dinner at the, on the la- the final day of the last two slams, sort of in Melbourne and, and in Paris. And and he has written a, a tremendous book on on Federer, which uh, I highly encourage everyone to, to to sort of go and get. And I've got another really really good mate, Simon Cam, who's an English journalist who uh, always stays with us in in Melbourne. And he he and uh, Graf from uh, from Switzerland, Simon Graf from Switzerland, I think Simon, uh, are writing Federer as well. So. Something along those lines would interest me. You know where that comes or what the topic is. I think it's it's still to to formalise. Like I've got some ideas, but it's it's a matter of trying to do that. So I think something like that would be good. But look, in, in the in the meantime, I just think trying to tell the story as well as possible and try and provide some insight. You know, you're only as good as your last story, and uh, and I think it's important to sort of <laughs> you know to remember that that you're writing for other people. You're trying to trying to tell the story for other people and. And you should try and approach each one as well as possible. So it's probably not 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 a, a long time. I, I hope I'm involved for, for many more years to come. You, you don't know, like it's a it's an uncertain world, but I, I do hope I get the chance to keep telling stories uh, for for a while to come yet. Certainly, and just one last one for me, Courtney. You mentioned the story that you wrote and the work that you did with Alex Steemanar. If not that, what is the proudest? 
I guess, story that you've put together? What are you most proud of? In terms of features, you know, because there are different different elements of stories that, and different skills that are, that are needed. Um, look, I really, I really loved a couple of the pieces I've done with Ash, the, the, the behind the scenes things and the access that you have and, and, the, and the way you can tell them and, and just seeing how amazing she is when she deals with all manner of people and, and how generous she is with her time. So I think a couple of the ones on Ash have been absolutely as proud as can be. Look, there's a certain sense when you write difficult stories. You know, it's. I know people. Some people might think the journalists go out of their way to to slam people. I've always tried not to. I, I think, but when there's a hard story that has to be written, you have to do it. And it's it still takes a bit of guts to, to confront someone or to pick up the conversation, pick up the phone, and make the difficult call to say, "Hey, this is what's happening." So you can cop some difficult ones. And you know, I've written a couple of a few through the years, which you know have been hard moments and. You know, you hate them, but there's also a part of you that goes, well, that had to be done. You had to make those calls. And and then, you know, just away from tennis, I, I suppose some of the, you know, there's been some really difficult sort of uh, stories in terms of, uh, you know, tragedies, et cetera, where you know, I remember being, you know, to, to, to give an indication of one, writing a story about Serena Williams winning the 2012 uh, US final sitting in a, uh, diner in New York about one one o'clock in the morning. Andy Murray, who had had the good fortune of ghosting his columns for the Australian for sort of three or four years, and he was a tremendous fellow, was due to play the final the next day. When word came through that uh, a footballer had fallen off a uh, had fallen off a roof in Las Vegas and was in a bad way, and so it was a tragic story. John McCarthy from uh, from Port Adelaide, formerly Collingwood, had, had fallen off the roof of uh, Flamingo and died. And, and look. Within a few hours, you're on the plane, sort of through Washington to, to Vegas, picked up by a, by a photographer. You're at a coroner's office at nine o'clock talking to the Las Vegas coroner, uh, you know, in a one-on-one. And then I think I slept about maybe six hours, about the next 72 hours, sort of on the phone back and forth from Australia, chasing different things. It was a really difficult story. It was one that, you know, you had to had to do. And, and I guess the work through that period, I think that was uh, that was an important one. And, and just to, to, to go from the, you know, thinking you're writing about Serena Williams writing the US Open, winning, winning the US Open title in the diner at one o'clock in the morning to to reporting on a tragedy sort of 10 hours later, it shows how quickly life can turn. And, uh, you know, you need to be on, you need to be able to think on your feet and sort of do things and, and balance the different demands of the job. So that one was one that will always stick with me. That would have been an absolute whirlwind of a, not even just a 10 hours, but a 72 hours, as you mentioned. Courtney, I really appreciate you taking the time to join me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved hearing about all these stories. I think that it's been certainly one of the more insightful chats that I've had on this show, from Roger Federer in a nightclub in Melbourne to Stan Stan Vavrinka at the Supper Club. Um, I've absolutely loved every bit of it, mate. So really appreciate you taking the time to join me and also appreciate you um, giving me some guidance at the slams, particularly the Australian Open. There's been some moments where you've you've helped me with some little things and I, I really do appreciate that. Oh, no, Jed, I, I, look, thanks for having me. I, as I said, I hope I don't sound uh, too much like a, uh, I suppose, what's the word they use? Flog is the one they use, which I hate. Absolutely but anyway, nice. um, but you be, and I really, really love your uh, engagement and enthusiasm in tennis and I think it's the more the better and uh, I'm glad that you're doing these things. I think it's great to hear from different people in the industry. So, Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Courtney. And uh, we'll be sure to chat again soon. Absolutely. Well, what an incredible journey Courtney has had. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this edition of Aussies Only. Be sure to tune into any previous edition of the show. I've had some incredible chats with some incredible people. Head over to thefirstserve.com.au to tune into any previous edition of the show. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's edition of Aussies Only. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win it. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.